Welcome to Useful Outsiders, a monthly podcast series brought to you by the Council for International Development. Kia ora koutou and welcome to episode 5. This month we have a really interesting and important discussion about some of the challenges around humanitarian response and support to war-affected communities, with a focus on the current conflict in Ukraine. The Council for International Development's Humanitarian and Standards Manager, Aaron Davey, hosts the discussion and we're delighted after a bit of diary coordination and navigating time zones, to be joined by Virginia Pycroft from ADRA. Virginia is currently based in Dili, Timor-Leste, but spent some time in Romania and in Makachevo in the Ukraine, just after the conflict began in February 2022. And we're also joined by Mike Seawright from Relief Aid, who is currently in Ukraine and has been back and forward there for the past five or so months. They bring some really great insights as they've both been working with their international teams and with local partners and volunteers in Ukraine to help provide support and relief to the many people in need of shelter, food, essential medicines and other emergency relief supplies and psychosocial support. Among other things, they talk about working with their local teams and volunteers whose lives are directly impacted, the safety and well-being of aid staff, interaction with the military and maintaining impartiality and funding and fundraising mechanisms. So, let's get into it. So, as as we kick off, I'd be interested to know from you, how is humanitarian aid and support mobilised when a conflict like Ukraine occurs? Perhaps um, it would be good to start to, to know from you how was it for you when you heard about the news from the Ukraine? Where were you, Mike, and what was your first response? Well, Aaron, we were uh, actually, uh, personally, if I look at myself, I was uh, en route to oversee our Syria operations. I was currently in Istanbul, um, and we saw that the conflict uh, that had started in Ukraine a few days before was not uh, looking to end anytime soon. As a result, Uh, as many emergency organisations and as a conflict specialist uh, humanitarian organisation relief aid is, uh, we made the uh, rapid decision to redeploy into Ukraine, looking to support humanitarian operations as we quickly saw the conflict expanded. So what did that mean in practice? Well, from uh, Istanbul, I flew into Bucharest, travelled by road across Romania and then crossed uh, into Ukraine uh, literally with only one contact, uh, f- one of the friends of one of our staff in the US. That quickly built into a wider network, creating contacts across the country, connecting with communities, finding staff, both national and international, setting up practical infrastructure such as trucks and warehousing, and all the while rapidly, and in some cases I would go so far as to say desperately, trying to secure support and funding to turn our ideas into action. One of the opportunities, one of the great things we've seen in the context of Ukraine is there's been huge international support, both from New Zealand, but across the wider international community. So that was how at least uh, Relief Aid started in Ukraine and it's continuing uh, to this date, five months, going on five months later. Yeah, and th- thanks, Mike. And, and for you, Virginia, you know, I'm sort of imagining there you were working in Dili um, and, your, and Timor-Leste in your, your, your regular job, so to speak. Just interested to know what the journey was for you to hear about Ukraine and then suddenly find yourself w- working in that response. 
Yeah, so when the, we, ADRA as a network already has a local team in Ukraine. So it's, uh, and has been working for a number of years there. And what normally happens is we, we get sit reps immediately, situation reports from um, the local office. And, and in this case, ADRA Ukraine uh, reached out to the network. And um, from that point, uh, different emergency response teams are mobilised depending on the needs that are required from our Ukraine team. So I saw this unfolding and the various um, sit reps coming through. I was actually not part of the first wave of support, but uh, I came later in April uh, to support the team. Um, but prior to that, ADRA had other emergency response team members uh, helping and assisting ADRA Ukraine. How, how long were you there, Virginia? I was in Romania initially for a week and then three weeks in Ukraine mm. in Makachevo. So I imagine with that sort of short, well, relatively short duration um, that you, you'd have to hit the ground running then. Yes, and so our structure is is um, such a way that that kind of handover happens fairly, if not seamlessly, at least there's procedures in place and we have obviously our local team guides what they need mm. and then we, um, we support them. Yeah. Well, um, it was really interesting to sort of hear you talk about the local teams in Ukraine that you're working with and, and also from you, Mike, around um, some of the local networks that you immediately tap into. I wonder, one of the things that we've spoken about at SID is the localization agenda. And I'm just wondering if you can let us know how important that localization agenda is for the work that you were doing um, in the Ukraine well, I'm sure Virginia sees this uh, in her own work, both in Ukraine and across the world, but essentially we can't do anything without teams of national staff. Obviously, we need humanitarian experts to support humanitarian operations in places in case of relief aid like Ukraine, Afghanistan and Syria. But the day-to-day -day work of our humanitarian action is done um, by our national teams. And... This is often an understated story where there is a focus on international response, meaning international staff members who capture the limelight of international media or national media. But in fact, the people that are putting themselves on the front line, the people that are putting themselves at risk are often uh, our national staff. And so they're the unsung heroes of humanitarian action, I would say. Yeah. Ukraine's got a special opportunity um, that's presented itself, and that is the incredible volunteer network. And I'm sure Virginia has seen this across the country here in Ukraine, but an incredible volunteer network where people, irrespective of their previous history, have converted ideas into action and gone out and helping their fellow Ukrainians. And it's this volunteer network that's allowed, at least in our case, and operations across the country in the hottest parts of Ukraine and without them, like our national staff, we literally wouldn't be able to get aid to where it's desperately needed. And these, are the, these again, are the unsung heroes of, of Ukraine today. It, it sort of always strikes me, Mike, that um, particularly, you know, when you're working with local colleagues, particularly during a conflict, I, I imagine that these are people that are dealing with loss and devastation to their own communities. What, was that something very apparent in terms of the, the people that you, you were working with? Yeah, it's, it's, you're absolutely right, Aaron. I was in Kharkiv, which is in the northeast, uh, about 10 days ago, mm -hmm. 
Uh, this is uh, literally a few kilometres from the front line, um, getting shelled on a daily basis. And I, I met what was the co-founder of one of the local volunteer networks, his name I won't uh, repeat for security reasons, but he had a home north of Harkiv, a farm to the west, uh, sorry, east of Harkiv as well. You would consider him a comparatively affluent person prior to the war. Were both, both his home and his farm were now occupied by Russian forces. His father had stayed behind in his own home, had been killed by a bombing, uh, when his home was hit. Uh, this individual himself uh, in the early days of the conflict was injured, was hit by shrapnel, opening up his back. And his response, despite having lost almost everything, his response was to set up a volunteer network that was providing at its peak food to 5,000 families every day. These people are absolutely incredible. And this is what I guess inspires and motivates at least myself here um, to carry on despite all the challenges you face trying to get aid to these families on or near the front line. Yeah, no, 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 no doubt. And Virginia, sort of um, from your perspective, um, what, what was the experience for you working with local uh, teams who, you know, have come from communities that have very much bore the brunt of, of this crisis? Um, how was it working with local responders um, in that regards, particularly when you were in Ukraine yourself? Yeah, similar to Mike's, I guess. So like, to me, the local teams are inspiring. You know, all, our ADRA office is not normally in Makachevo. We normally have um, our office in Kiev and Mariupol and some of the other places around. And so all our staff were basically IDPs, uh, internally displaced people. They, they weren't in their own place. They their homes they will not be able to go back to actually and um and they had to restart the office and yet here they were working long hours tapping into their networks trying to um you know access uh, aid and support and um yeah just really working hard for um their own people some of them their families had gone into neighboring countries uh for safety and they were working still in Ukraine without their families um, and some had their families still with them and so to me they were the inspiration of the trip that they were um, you know working really hard in a humanitarian response when they themselves are um, uncertain about their own personal future. Yeah and, and so sort of thinking about that uncertainty and, and what is um, happening in the Ukraine response um, what are some of the sort of real key challenges that stood out for you, Virginia? There's the overwhelming nature of people operating with trauma, of their own trauma, and, and then there's also the amount of work that needs to be done. You know, they see their fellow countrymen just in great need, and I guess they want to help and they, they can't help everyone, and that is really challenging. In a conflict situation, obviously, we had teams going in and helping uh, evacuate people who um, needed evacuating from from, some, from the eastern front line. And, you know, they were putting their lives on the line to, to go and do that and um, just really showing, I guess, the spirit of humanity. You know, in this kind of conflict, you see the worst and you also see the best of humanity. Yeah. Um, and and certainly um, the first responders are in fact not international people; they're the people who are there when it happens. <laughs> and um, and no matter how fast international people can get there, we're never 
right there when it happens. And, you know, anything we can do to support people responding is, um, is really welcome, I guess. And, you know, some of the teams were starting to get fatigued because they'd obviously been on the go since day one. And for us internationals, we can, we can swap out for a bit. But for them, it's their, their place. It's where they live. It's their country. And it's harder to, to shut down. And so psychosocial support is important, not just for um, the communities where we serve, but also within our own teams. Yeah. And for you, Mike, I mean, um, I, I sort of imagine you've been in the Ukraine off and on for quite some time now. Do you sort of have, have that same sense that you can swap out as needed compared to sort of local people? Well, I think um, Virginia nailed it on the head there. You know, our national teams um, and the people that we work with are dealing with the dual challenge of delivering humanitarian support and then dealing with a situation, their own personal situation, that is absolutely terrible. I mean, I, I can't count the number of people I've met, be it hardened men or you know, local community leaders who have literally cried in meetings as we've been discussing our humanitarian combined uh, humanitarian action. So this this is traumatic for our international team who uh, on a day-to-day basis talk to communities, talk to leaders, talk to families that have lost their homes and for our national staff who are living in the middle of it it's just every day is a reminder of what's happened to them and their own situation. And it, it's, it's, it's hard, but I have to say the inspiring side of it is you do see the problem as internationals and nationals, and you also see the impact of your work. And this is hugely motivating, despite the fact that everyone's working crazy hours and have an uncertain future. I was thinking, Mike, about um, you know the work you've done as, with relief aid in Syria as well as Afghanistan, and I wondered, are there any particular unique aspects to the Ukraine conflict which sort of marks it as quite different to your experience in Syria or, or Afghanistan? Uh, it's a good question, uh, Aaron. I think, um, I guess, to highlight what's not different, uh, and unfortunately this is now a common occurrence across conflict zones in the world now and that is the systematic and deliberate targeting of civilian infrastructure and previously sacrosanct institutions such as schools and hospitals this is not different we see it continually in Syria and certainly saw it in the days of Aleppo when Aleppo city uh, battle was going on in 2015 and 16 and we're now seeing many respects of copy paste of that uh, deliberate targeting of civilians in places like Mariupol and in the east. Mm-hmm. So th- this is, in some respects, it is not different. Yeah. What What is different, and uh, and unfortunately this is coming at a cost of other conflicts in the world like Syria and Afghanistan, is the unprecedented but absolutely necessary support for Ukraine, be it uh, obviously in the military area, which is not our business, but um, in the humanitarian support that's being provided. It's been unprecedented, the outpouring of support, clothing, money, uh, food that's been brought from the likes of Europe and wider afield in the world to Ukraine. But the flip side of that, of course, is places like Syria and Afghanistan, 
have literally fallen off the radar. And yet these conflicts, these humanitarian crises are continuing. Yeah. No, that that's um, yeah certainly true, and a, a very sort of a tragic uh, dilemma that that most of us are, are faced with the sort of dual crises that we're we're always trying to deal with. Um, Virginia, from from your perspective, what was specifically challenging, or what were some of the unique aspects around the Ukraine conflict from your perspective? Yeah, I guess for me, um, I hadn't been in a conflict situation before. Mm. I had. I guess been in Cox's Bazaar with the refugee crisis there, but our teams weren't refugees themselves, unlike um, unlike here in Ukraine. And so for me, it was it was the and the ongoing nature of the of a conflict crisis. And you know, I'd echo what Mike is saying around how other crises get forgotten um, because this one is in the news so much. <laughs> And it is a little bit sad, and I would add Yemen to the list as well, um, yeah. of forgotten conflict crises that inevitably happens. Um, but I, but I don't. This Ukraine crisis is unique in that it seems to be staying in the news a bit longer. Um, often, these types of things are in the news when it first happens, and then kind of peters out to a sub plot somewhere else in the back pages um, and so it's interesting how that support has has come for Ukraine um, and it's partly because it's in people's minds all the time mm. yeah. yeah it's Jenny it's, it is really interesting your comment on the on the media cycle um, despite the fact that Ukraine would have seen unprecedented support, at least in our generation, as far as a humanitarian crisis goes, perhaps paralleled by the Boxing Day tsunami. But mm. even now we're seeing a reduction in support. We're seeing a reduction in the news cycle. In many respects, you know, we take opportunities like today to remind New Zealanders and other people listening to the podcast that the the conflict is not finished here in Ukraine because out of sight is out of mind and if we don't mm. keep media interests public interest then quite quickly Ukraine will become one of those forgotten conflicts that's been going on too long despite the fact that the humanitarian crisis here like the other conflicts of Yemen as you've pointed out um, continue. Mm. Yeah and it's interesting how people how because we see that that in, is repeated in in all types of crises, um, and the, a lot of money comes flooding in and donations of different kinds all at the beginning. But actually, the real work happens um, the longer you go on, and especially. And we don't know when recovery work can start. And and I guess I pray that the war will end so that recovery work can start, and we're not just responding. Um, but that we're rebuilding. But that is when, yeah, things, I guess it needs to be in the media, but it doesn't ever make that recovery phase, that uh, rebuilding phase. And it's, it's and, interesting. So I'm glad for the opportunity, like Mike said, to, to talk about it. And conflicts are not uh, uniform. If we look yeah. uh, in the context of Ukraine, what was an exceptionally dangerous place around Kiev. I was in Butcher a few days after Russian forces left. We were um, we were providing food to 
um, families that were living in Bucho, now unfortunately an infamous uh, town mm. in the outskirts of, of Kiev. Um, these areas are now comparatively safe, whereas in the northeast, it's still mm. in the south, it's uh, very dangerous. And what are communities asking us for now in Bucha, Erpin, Gorinka, these satellite cities of Kiev? They're saying, look, we need help to rebuild our homes. We don't just need mm. emergency humanitarian support, but we're looking to the future. And who's going to rebuild my wall? Because I don't have a job. I don't have any support coming from the international community yet. And they're wondering where the solution to their, their family problem, their life, their future lies. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And, um, and I, I think maybe one of the questions some people will have is, you know, concerns and um, considerations for your own safety. Just wondering, you know, how do you manage that from a safety and security perspective? Um, yeah, how do you approach that, Mike? Yeah, it's uh, keeping your staff safe is our number one priority, despite the fact that we work in and and deliberately work in areas that are particularly hot. Mm. So th- this, the only way to describe this is it's managed risk, because it's impossible to remove risk when you're working close or near the front line. And I'll give you some uh, practical example, which is, you know, there's been some sort of new experiences for me uh, working here in Ukraine. Um, we travel to the northeast uh, by train. Well, this, um, it's currently, we uh, evaluate that this is the safest option, especially when in practical terms, getting fuel for vehicles in the country now is extremely difficult. Mm. So you can literally start a journey mm. out of Kiev and not be able to reach the other end because you can't secure fuel en route. But what was interesting on this train journey is that um, all the carriages have blast film on the windows. We travel at night um, to reduce risk as well. And there are blackout curtains across the entire train, again, reducing the risk that the train is visible um, at night um, and therefore reduce the risk of an attack. In Kharkiv itself, we're visiting areas um, and Kharkiv uh, was when I was up there and continues to be quite a warm slash hot place. Um, they are constantly under bombardment. What are we doing? We're, we're evaluating the neighbourhoods that are seeing increased action, um, noting that obviously at any point, given the proximity of the front line and the current patterns of attack, that anywhere in the city is a target. Mm. So all of this means we're managing risk in a practical sense, um, but it is impossible to eliminate it. Yeah, we have a, a, I guess, safety and security plans and we're liaising, obviously, the local team is part of doing that. So for me personally, I was not in a high-risk area, so um, my personal well-being was okay. For our uh, staff who were travelling to the east, we have documented security plans and contingency plans for if something goes wrong. And, you know, like Mike said, you, you can't eliminate the risk because it's a war zone. <laughs> yeah. um, but you can, by thinking about it, um, you, can, you can reduce it and give 
people the tools for evaluating it quickly because things change quickly. And just because when you start your journey in Western Ukraine, it looks like something when you at the end, but then when you get there, it's something different. So yeah. it's just a matter of um, making sure people are aware of making um, decision-making skills for evaluating risk very quickly and then adapting. Yeah. Um, and and we saw evidence of that with our drivers um, adapting and changing <laughs> things up when um, they came under attack and different things like that. So it's um, it's something that's constant in in the minds, and I guess it's in the minds more interestingly enough of the international staff than of the local staff who who just want to get in there and help. Um, and so then that part of our role is to just um, be sure that it's done um, yes. in a way that we can reduce the risk where yeah. we can. Yeah. It's sort of, um, sort of reflecting on my, on my um, in 2015, um, I myself were in Eastern Ukraine. Um, this is in sort of, the, I guess, the earlier stages of the Donbass tensions and um, was based in Severodonetsk, um, <laughs> At, at that stage, we, I guess it was a far, far more predictable environment um, compared to what you're, you're both dealing with now. Um, I, I guess what, what I'd like to do is sort of flip this a little bit and, and sort of as, as individuals yourself, selves, um, sort of understand what, what you do in terms of self-care um, as an aid worker. You know, what, what role does self-care have for you um, individually um, in terms of your ability to, to do the work you do? There's the theoretical uh, self-care model, um, if I look personally at myself, Aaron, and then the practical one. Yeah. We, can, we, we can talk about, um, you know, limiting your hours, uh, taking breaks from work, uh, looking for opportunities to decompress, uh, rotate out of the country. Um, or we can look at the practical aspects and, you know, this. there are a myriad of negative coping mechanisms, but I like my beer, you know. Mm. So what what do I do after a particularly stressful day? I'll sit down, open a beer and just try and relax and use that as a decompression tool. Now, I don't think that's particularly healthy. Um, and there are many better ways to deal with stress and the mental toll that working in environments where everything around you is devastated and lives are being pulled apart but uh, I mean I wouldn't be honest if I didn't describe uh, having a cold ale at the end of the day as a important part of my stress management and self-care philosophy yeah. um, obviously within limits is the important part of that yeah, yeah, and and for you, Virginia, um, are you a cold, um, cold ale at the end of the day um, person, or what? What do you do? For <laughs> Actually, um, I picked up some baklava on the way through. Uh, I was going. I went through Istanbul, and at the end of one day that was particularly stressful, I had a cup of tea and a piece of baklava, and just <laughs> sent the photo of the tea and baklava to, to a friend who I knew wouldn't need heaps of explanation, and just, yeah, that was my way of relaxing or decompressing. Um, but I think it is important to, to just know for your own self what, what you do and what yeah. you need, and to be a little bit honest about that, and if it is 
you know, a drink at the end of the day, then that's what it is. And then, and then just being intentional, you know, we owe it to our, as international staff, we owe it to our local teams to be the, on top and, and not um, because they are, you know, with this trauma the whole time. Um, and so we do need to take care of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. In, in whatever way but, that looks like. Virginia is obviously a much more mature person than myself. <laughs> it's quite obvious. Uh, she, she has more positive coping mechanisms than I do. Um, I might give you a call afterwards, Virginia. You, give, you can give me some more tips. Well, strength is in diversity, even with um, coping mechanisms. So, um, yeah. I, I just wonder um, one of the things that I was interested in, and I guess, you know, talking from. I don't know if I can segue from talking about self-care to um, how you engage with um, military, but um, so I, I'm not even going to try and create a link, but um, I wondered, um, are you interested, um, you know, again, reflecting on when I was there in 2015 and engagement with Ukraine um, military was, well, in, in my experience at that time was relatively um, straightforward because um, many of them were not sort of in active combat as, as such, but interested to know from your experience, Mike, how it is with the interaction between um, yourself as someone working for a civilian uh, relief agency and, and how you deal with those interactions with military, whether it's Russian forces or whether it's Ukraine forces. I think that this is the... Uh some of the biggest questions we face when operating in conflict zones around the world. And that is the, the question about how do we ensure we may maintain our neutrality and impartiality in the midst of a war where in the case of Ukraine, the entire country is mobilized both from a military perspective, but also a humanitarian perspective. And as we see in other conflicts, humanitarian workers and also here in Ukraine, um, humanitarian workers are already being deliberately targeted and systematically targeted. So th this not only uh, means in Ukraine that we have to maintain impartiality and neutrality, but you have to, as an organization, maintain it across your entire global operations to ensure that there are no reasons for an attack, not that there should be any against humanitarian workers, but maintenance of uh, impartiality is a critical part of that. Unfortunately, no matter what you do these days, humanitarian workers are being targeted. Mm. In a practical aspect, uh, in Ukraine, we passing checkpoints through Ukrainian forces is comparatively simple. Um, uh, of course, at different places, depending on the security environment, you need permission to do that. Um, but in general, the operating environment is relatively permissive. But nonetheless, this we have to maintain a distance from all armed actors of conflict and ensure that we put the aid agenda, aid on the basis of need first, not on the basis of political and any other military objective that the armed forces or New Zealand government or others have. Yeah. I would echo that. Um, I, so Certainly, I guess uh, most aid agencies would have the same uh, approach. In Ukraine, we um, we did benefit from uh, corridors, humanitarian corridors that were enforced by the um, Ukrainian military. 
So we did actually benefit in that way um, from, from what they were doing, even if it was indirect. Um, so, so yeah, it's not always black and white, but certainly the intention is always to, to not make yourself a target <coughs> by, by being with military. Um, either combat military or support military. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I think as you've pointed out there, Virginia, we, when guys with guns are controlling the environment that we work, so it is not possible to move from one location to another without some form of permission. This is a, a basic yeah. fact of humanitarian action. Um, so it's not about working with the military, but of course you they control the environment. So we need their permission to move to places such as where you're looking to evacuate people or get aid near or close to the front lines again. So this is a balancing act of making sure that you do that in a way that maintains both the perception but the actuality, including um, where your funding sources come from um, to ensure you stay separate from the war. Mm. I just want to touch on that, um, Mike, um, talking about funding sources. Um, and um, as, as we sort of start to wrap up the, um, this conversation, do, from a funding and mobilising perspective, do you sort of, do you believe that the necessary systems are in place? Um, I, I'm interested to know from you um, what you feel could be improved at this point um, around ongoing support for the response in the U Ukraine. We're in a, I'm not sure we can comment on the whole aid picture uh, with this, Aaron. Um, and the main reason for that is we don't receive any government or institutional funding uh, anywhere in any of our operations across the world. We do this to maintain our uh, independence and impartiality primarily. Um, but looking at it from a public fundraising, a private fundraising, meaning mums and dads, private foundations, family foundations, um, I think technology has played a major role in communicating with people now. Um, we are lucky to, if I look at Relief Aid directly, but um, Ukraine is showing this across the humanitarian community, the media are certainly open to telling the story, which means the general public are seeing this. There are tools that were not, you know, 20 years ago did not exist, such as Give a Little, allowing um, open public fundraising as well as bespoke systems that uh, you know that we have as individual organizations so I think there are many things in place even for a comparatively small humanitarian organization like Relief Aid that allows us to have a much bigger reach in terms of the humanitarian conversation mm. um, with the general public that weren't there uh, even a few years ago how well uh, is the institutional funding, the government funding set up? Well, I think this is not something I can comment on today simply because um, we don't receive it. Yeah. And, and Virginia, from your perspective, in, in your experience, particularly around the Ukraine conflict, do you, do you feel there could be some improvements in how funding or mobilisation of resources is happening? Yeah. To be honest, there's been a, the governments have been... Well, different governments, I should say, not all are equal, but different institutional fundings have um, been very flexible and very open to hearing what the situation is and um, and being understanding if it changes from the time a proposal is sent in to the time it actually gets approved and implemented. 
Um, most of most of them, or many of them, are, are open to having discussions um, with the local teams and and discussing, you know, ways around different uh, different problems. And um, it it is an administrative burden, uh, and and as an organisation, that's one of the things our emergency response team tries to um, take. Uh, from our local team, so then they don't have to deal with some of some of the administrative burden that's required. But uh, I don't know. I guess in general, from the institutional donors that we've had, most of them were, were fairly open, which which is commendable. Um, speaking outside of Ukraine, um, if we look at other places, sometimes it's hard for institutional donors to link to. Uh, local organisations directly, and I guess um, yeah, that that could be a way that they could um, where they could improve. Yeah, and and I myself, I I wouldn't understand how it would necessarily work in a conflict like Ukraine, but you know we're we're increasingly talking about better ways that we can support localisation from a funding perspective yeah. as well. Well, the reality is that. Yeah. Administration burden needs to come down if they want um, truly local organisations yeah. to to acquire as the reality, <laughs> which is something that I that, that I feel probably won't happen in the short term. Um, and so, so that's why it's important for organisations such as ours to um, to facilitate that, to be mindful of that, create partnerships, and to access it where we can and to put it to good use with local actors. Not just our own national stuff. Sure. In, in sort of conclusion, interested to know from you, Mike, if uh, your experience in the Ukraine, whether you've gained any uh, any additional insights or, or knowledge that you think would be useful in terms of future humanitarian scenarios that you might be um, involved in. And any last thoughts from you? William, well, we're always learning. I personally am always learning, and I've been working conflict zones for going on 17, 18 years now, and I'm still learning things as it comes uh, into Ukraine. But I guess looking at some of that big picture stuff, um, Ukraine has taught us uh, better than anywhere that I've seen. And I've worked with some absolutely incredible people in incredible communities in places like Yemen and Pakistan, Syria, Afghanistan. But Ukraine has shown us what a national volunteering network can achieve from a humanitarian outcome perspective. It has been absolutely amazing to see businesses committing their warehouses and their trucks for humanitarian action. Staff who are employed currently being uh, released to do humanitarian action to help their communities. Local leaders who, despite having entire communities destroyed, getting out there every day and helping the fellow Ukrainians. These are not paid individuals. They do it pro bono at their own time and often at their own risk. But this volunteering network in Ukraine, I have not seen such a large scene at such a large scale. And this is the power of people. So if we pick up this model and other future conflicts and unfortunately there will be future conflicts it shows what it shows what communities 
truly can do to help themselves and therefore help the humanitarian crisis overall. And it's amazing. It's been an eye-opener for me, the scale of this volunteering network in Ukraine. Thanks, Mike. And, and from you, Virginia, what, what's some of the sort of unique aspects um, that you've sort of discovered in the Ukraine, which you would um, hope to sort of take on into, as Mike was saying, unfortunately, there will be future conflicts and no doubt um, you'll, you'll, I imagine you'll be part of the response for those conflicts, but any sort of lessons learned that you'll be taking forward from Ukraine specifically? Yeah, I guess um, I'd, I'd just like to echo a little bit Mike's um, comment around volunteers. You know, we work with volunteers in lots of different places around the world, lots of different humanitarian um, settings, and and certainly it was no different here in Ukraine. But it is incredible when you think that these guys are um, these guys have trauma and they are stressed and they've got personal circumstances um, and they're helping anyway. And I guess, you know, Ukraine taught me that there is there is ways through some of these issues if um, the of how to respond in difficult settings when people get together and and they care and they have a heart for for what they do. And I think, you know, maybe the war wouldn't have even started if the right people got together and just talked about some stuff sensibly, like. I just feel like that, you know, communities is where um, where peace can happen, and and without peace, there there is no recovery and there is no way forward. In it. So I think strengthening the community mechanisms for 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 banding together is the way forward, not only for Ukraine but for many um, situations. Absolutely, Virginia. Uh, we are, I'm unashamedly um, would state that relief aids work is a band-aid uh, keeping people al- alive until the peace comes but the true solution is peace so mm. this must be the focus going forward otherwise more homes more people will be devastated by wars like Ukraine. Thanks Mike and, and thanks Virginia and, and we'll, we'll um, wrap it up there but um I just want to thank you both um, for the work you do and, and certainly, um, you know, the, the heart aspect of what you do um, as well. But knowing that, um, you know, it takes a lot of planning, it takes a lot of risk management um, and it takes a lot of um, local boots on the ground um, to make things happen and um, certainly appreciate the part that, that you both play in that Um uh, Virginia, from from um, from where I'm sitting, I, I think it's um, well. It's evening here in uh, Wellington, but I understand it's about three o'clock there in Dili, and um, I can hear the roosters occasionally. So I imagine it's slightly <laughs> more peaceful existence than what you had in um, the Ukraine. And um, Mike, for you, I understand it's about eight o'clock in the morning in Kiev. So um, thank you, and and hopefully you have a rest, a relatively um, event-free day ahead for you. thanks Aaron thank you thanks Aaron thank you for listening to Useful Outsiders please subscribe share rate and review and help us to spread the word we'd love to hear from you so if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes please get in touch you can find our email in the episode notes we hope you'll join us for the next episode